0: Former pastor for the Holland family and now a consultant, Dr. Matt Cook wrote this week in a blog online, in the second and third centuries, two different pandemics swept through the ancient Roman world. Many Roman cities were densely populated. By some estimates, ancient Rome was three times more densely populated per square mile than modern-day New York City, which made them a perfect ground for communicable diseases. And of course, the Roman world lacked what modern medicine has taught us about microbiology and epidemiology. The most reliable estimates suggest that somewhere between a quarter and a third of the Roman Empire perished in the second century epidemic alone. When When the pandemics hit, the wealthy and powerful were able to survive far more easily. They had the resources to sequester themselves at home or, or, even better to relocate to the country where they were not surrounded all, on all sides by the sick and dying. They didn't know exactly what was causing people to die, but they knew they felt that staying behind likely meant death and getting away likely meant living. So they left. One obscure religious cult, however, seemed to defy the odds There were all kinds of bizarre rumors about this particular cult, strange initiation rites, political subversion, cannibalism, just to name a few. But when the pandemics hit, they not only stayed in the cities, they also survived in larger numbers than the surrounding population. The members of this obscure religious cult had a name for themselves. They called themselves Christians. The leaders of the early church saw what took place in their midst in miraculous terms. And if you believe that miracles are possible, and I do, then you can't completely discount that idea. It's just as likely, however, that what those early Christians did without realizing it was make small contributions to the health and well-being of those around us, around them. Dionysius, the bishop of Alexandria, said that many Christians took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in the name of Christ. Such care started a virtuous cycle. Simple kindnesses like a cold cloth on a feverish forehead or food provided to people too weak to feed themselves meant those people survived in greater numbers And the combinations of Christians surviving in larger numbers drew more people into the circle of care who also survived in larger numbers. Many then became followers of Jesus, both as a result of the kindness which they could explain and their survival, which, lacking a medical explanation, seemed miraculous. Jesus said, do you love me? Feed my sheep. In contrast, this week I read an Opinion of Peace about how the government was trying to oppress Christians and that churches should all open back up immediately. Christians needed to be in church on Sunday. But Jesus did not say that was the most important thing. God did say to honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. But holy doesn't just happen in church. I also read about a political official who believes that we should not wear masks to cover our faces because our faces are the image of God. This is not the entire world. This is the greatest nation on earth founded on Judeo-Christian principles, he said. One of those principles is that we are all created in the image and likeness of God. That image is seen the most by our face. I will not wear a mask. When we think about the image and likeness of God, we are created in the image and likeness of God. When we think about of image, we, do we think of a chest or, or our legs or our arms? We think of their face. I don't want to cover people's faces, Vital said. Someone I follow on Twitter humorously said this week about this particular incident. God has kindly requested to be excluded from this narrative. Jesus said, do you love me? Feed my sheep. And then a video taken in February began making its rounds this week. Finally, where we saw two men, a father and a son, decide who gets to live and who should die. When they said that a young man running, a black man, uh, when they saw a young man, excuse me, running, a black man, and they hopped in their truck armed. When they called 911, they said that there had been a string of robberies, and this looked like the guy who had done it. The truth is that in the two months prior to this, there had been two robberies with no suspects. Neither robbery had been reported to the police. But these two did not seem to see the image of God in Ahmaud Arbery. They saw a black man and assumed the worst. They tracked him down in their truck and then they shot him three times when he fought back when they came at him with the gun at one o'clock in the afternoon. The image of the video shows them having pulled their truck in the middle of the road, firearms raised, waiting for a mod to approach them. Neither man was originally charged with anything. And in the original police reports, they are listed as witnesses, not suspects. Jesus said, do you love me? Feed my sheep. More information will come out, I'm sure of it. Everything that Ahmad has ever done wrong will be traced out to show that he deserved what happened. He wasn't perfect either. It will make us feel better. It will make us feel more righteous. In her book, Know My Name, Chanel Miller, who was the victim attacked by Brock Turner. You may remember the guy on the swimming scholarship. That's how we all remember the story. The guy who didn't want his life, his whole life ruined for one little mistake. He was given a ridiculously lenient sentence for rape. Chanel says that we do this to the victims in our culture. We make them remember all of the details. We traipse them through all of their history. We do not list their accolades, but we list everything that they've done wrong ever. Chanel was also incredibly intelligent, was also awarded scholarships, had volunteered, but but none of that was mentioned. The media knows that we want to feel isolated from the victims, from the people that have had the bad stuff happen to them. And so we list all of their faults. All of the reasons how they have messed up the image of God. Sounds like Job's friends to me. What did you do wrong to deserve this awful thing that's happened to you? Because it must be something. It must be something and not a product of a broken world a broken world that, that I should feel compelled to work towards fixing. I'm separate from this pain. And Jesus asks, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Activist Carlos Rodriguez this week addressed the latest conspiracy theories that are making their rounds on social media about the pandemic and Ahmad. Uh, He combined them because there's there's a thread that runs through both of these stories and our response to them. He says conspiracy theories have become the preferred hiding place for Christians who don't want to face the very real oppression that surrounds them and how it affects others. Conspiracy theories also reinforce the belief that as a Christian, I'm not blind like them. I have seen the light. The truth has set me free. A form of pride, not humility. And Jesus asks, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Feeding sheep is not about rightness. It is not about just what happens after death. We only have to look at the life of Jesus to see what he fought for. The people on the margins, those being taken advantage of, those being pushed out and condemned. We only have to look at the life of Jesus to see what he fought against. Power structures and and actually religious leaders that put rightness and following a bunch of rules over loving and caring for people. Worship of God. I'm putting that in air quotes. Worship of God that took advantage of the poor. I think way too many times the images I see of those who call themselves Christians today look very little like the way Christ actually lived. And in the middle of all of this, Jesus asks, Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Glennon Doyle Melton, in her book, Untamed, says, When you look at the world, what is it you can't stand? go stand there. We have lost the things that numb us, the things that take our attention away from the pain in the world and distract us. We've had to watch the news. We we see the stories, like Ahmad's story. And we have time to read stories and books like Chanel Miller's that I've read during this season. We see how this virus is pointing out our structural racism as a country, as our Brown brothers and sisters are suffering disproportionately from this virus. We see how lower income people that we like to now praise as heroes are really just often seen as dispensable. I think this is what brings up my own anxiety as we think about life on the other side. Don't go back to life as normal. Don't go back to busy. Don't go back to numb. We talked last week that the reason Jesus meets these disciples here on this beach, this, this is the second part of that conversation. Um, eating their fish was, was to show them you can't go back to this, to the way that you've known the world. Once you really had an encounter with Jesus, it should change and shape the way that we live, the way that we love. Peter was just a fisherman, a smelly fisherman who had just either been naked in a boat or the prettier versions of scripture that he'd taken off his outer cloak. Either way, this was not like a scholarly genius. This was not the guy you'd think would be a natural born leader. This was a man, a humble man, who had made a mistake, was accepting the forgiveness of his friend, Jesus, and then would change the world. This morning, just as Jesus asked Peter on that beach, Jesus is asking us, do you love me? Because if you do, go feed my sheep. Let's pray.